thanks to Cryer Malt. Welcome to Radio Brews News, the podcast that shows that while wine is a lecture, beer is a conversation. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, editor of Australian Brews News, and uh, once again I'm not joined by my good friend, colleague and usual co-host Pete Mitchum. Pete's on a family holiday in Europe, uh, checking out all of the great beer destinations of, uh, of the northern climes, and uh, we will try and touch base with uh, Prof at some stage to find out how his trip's going and the beers that he's been trying, but you're stuck with me alone again today. Um, but I am joined by some guests who do know what they're talking about, so it is well worth hanging around for. First up, we'll be checking in with Kevin Hingston, who is the Communications and Media Manager with the 2014 Australian National Homebrew Conference Committee to find out what's happening with this year's ANHC, um, which is definitely a must-attend event if you are at all caught up in the world of homebrewing. After that, I'll be playing an interview I recorded late last year with Keith Villa, who's certainly not a household name in Australia, but he's the head brewer with the Blue Moon Brewing Company, one of the craft brewing arms of US brewing giant Miller Coors. Blue Moon Belgian White has recently been introduced to Australia through Miller Coors' partnership with Coca-Cola Amatil. Um, this interview was recorded late last year, but didn't go out with a podcast uh, because we've been on one of our many hiatuses, but as CCA ramp up their marketing for it, it's timely uh, that we play the interview now so you can get a bit of a sense for the beer, the brand, and the people behind it. Before we hear those interviews, though, I need to pay for all of this and thank our sponsors. The number one is Cryer Malt, uh, or on this occasion, we're actually thanking Cryer Malt through Beervana. Um, held in Wellington on the 22nd and 23rd of August this year, Beervana is New Zealand's largest showcase of craft beer and brewing. And a major feature at this year's Beervana is the Taste of Portland area. Three award-winning Portland brewers, a Portland chef, and one of the USA's leading beer writers are heading to Wellington as part of what's called the Beervana Exchange, which encourages the sharing of ideas and experiences between the two craft beer capitals. If you didn't know, Wellington sees itself as New Zealand's craft beer capital, and Portland certainly has a, a big claim to being the USA's craft beer capital. So it's a great chance for those two uh, big brewing communities to get together and exchange ideas. If you're involved in the brewing trade and you want to get your products in front of the cream of New Zealand's craft brewing fraternity, this year also sees the inaugural Beervana Trade Show, aimed at developing business in the craft brewing industry. And it's being held in the Westpac Stadium, the site of the Beervana uh, Beer Festival, from 2 p.m. to from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. on Thursday, the 21st of August, the day before the festival itself kicks off. Head over to beervana.co.nz to find out more if you're interested in showcasing at the trade show. Finally, if you're keen to head over to Beervana yourself, there is a chance to uh, win some flights and accommodation, uh, and that's the f- courtesy of the folks at wellingtonnz.com. Um, they have a competition that involves filling out a crossword that when you fill it out correctly, it spells a certain uh, word. When you head off um, to the wellingtonnz.com website, you'll be able to put that word in and go in the draw. Um, now, the flights are from Sydney or Melbourne uh, because there is a tie-in with uh, Time Out magazine, um, which is based in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, but I'm sure if you can get yourself to either of those destinations, uh, you'd be able to pick up the uh flights and the accommodation uh, package as well. So jump on our show notes at brewsnews.com.au and you'll see all of the entry details. You'll be able to download the form and also there's a link to the wellingtonnz.com where you'll be able to put in your entry. So that's that ad done. 
let's find out a little bit more about this year's Australian National Homebrew Conference. And now I'm joined by Kevin Hingston, who's on the organising committee of this year's Australian National Homebrewing Conference, ANHC4. Kevin, welcome to Radio Brews News. Thank you very much, Matt. Mate, look, I have to say, you know, I, I was uh, at the first um, ANHC and I was completely blown away by the uh, quality of the event and it's just gone from strength to, to strength since then. But this is the first time that it's been held in the ACT, so you guys are, uh, I guess, ANHC organisational virgins. Is that fair call? In, indeed. I mean, um, a group of us went down to Melbourne for ANHC 3 and we just had both in terms of fun and education, just, it was really next level for us. And um, we started talking, you know, it's been in Melbourne three times, maybe we should put it to the committee that um, Canberra has a run. And um, they they were certainly receptive and we, we put a proposal together and they, they came on board. So for probably pretty much the best part of the last year, we've been um, slowly ramping up and now we're very quickly ramping up to the uh, ticket sales on the 1st of July and the conference in mid-October. We're getting very close, but uh, tell us a little bit more about it. Tickets go on sale uh, on the 1st of July, as you just mentioned. What sort of things uh, can people expect if they come along to it? So it's a um, it's a pretty jam-packed program. The main conference runs on um, the Friday and Saturday, so Friday the um, 17th and Saturday the 18th of October, following the national competition on the 16th. Um, and so the two main conference days are pretty much back-to-back speakers from um, from around Australia and around the world. Our keynote speaker, Vinny Chalurzo from Russian River. We've got um, John Keeling from Fuller's and um, a range of uh, Australian speakers as well. So, um, yeah, there's a focus on education, a focus on tasting, as um, many can well imagine. And uh, then in the evenings, uh, we've got the uh, Gala Awards dinner, so that's a beer and food matching dinner at the National Museum of Australia, where we'll be giving out the awards from the national competition. And then, of course, on Saturday evening, following the close of the conference, we've got the club night, and anyone who's been to ANHC or nationals before would know what a big event club night can turn into. <laughs> but you've thrown a lot of information at us, so I guess we might just have step back. A lot of people will have been to ANHC before, but... Um, and they would be sort of ticking those off, those things off as fantastic. I guess stepping back for people that may not have been, or people who uh, you know say think it sounds interesting, interested in getting into home brewing. Just tell us a little bit about what the program's aimed at. I mean, you've got some big, big names coming along, but is it for the really, really serious all grain, you know, uh, full kit caboodle home brewer, or you know, is there stuff that's going to be there for the uh, you know um, kit and kilo uh, brewer as well? Certainly, um, our, our focus, um, you, you know, if you're a serious brewer, you're going to get a lot out of it. But that's not to say that um, newer brewers won't get anything. I, I was, I'd been brewing for one year when I went to ANHC3, and it was actually really a, a big stepping stone for me to take it a bit more seriously in the following year. Um, you may not absorb everything you get at the conference, and that, that, that's probably true for anyone who attends, but you certainly get to pick out some real, really good tidbits to improve your brewing um, at whatever your level. And I, I guess it's a huge coup to uh, have Vinny Chalurzo uh, coming down. It, it's, from the best of my knowledge, the first time he's uh, been to Australia in an official capacity. I, I believe so, yeah. And certainly, I mean, anyone who's been over to the West Coast and had a chance to try um, Pliny the Elder or any of their 
Haitian ending beers. There's, there's a list as long as your arm of, of Belgian-inspired um, beers there that are just fantastic. And um, he is bringing out a range of beers with him. So uh, we're very excited. And um, I think anyone who's tasted those beers before will be as well. He's an amazing brewer and he's got a lot to talk to us about around souring, around barrel aging and around getting such a big IPA in front of the elder there. Russian River is certainly one of the monsters of the, uh, you know, one of the uh, legends of uh, the American craft brewing ranks. Uh, you know, he's he's leg- he's a legend. He, you know, went a long way to kicking off the the, the, the sour um, renaissance that we're seeing these days with all of the craft brewers getting into a uh, souring of beers. But uh, it, it was a huge coup. Was it difficult to get him to lure him across the Pacific? Um, there, there was a bit of toing and throwing, but um, he was certainly keen to um, to help help grow the, the scene here in Australia. I mean, the, you look at the NHC over in the US, and that is a huge event. And uh, NHC's always tried to emulate and grow that um, similar community here. So, I think um, I imagine Vinny's you know keen to help us build that here as well. Um, he he was certainly our, our first cut off the rank, so we, we organised him late last year and were very keen to finally announce that um, after the Nationals that we had him on board. That was, as you say, a big coup. We were all very excited. And uh, just just out of interest, you said that there was a bit of negotiation involved. Is it a little bit like uh, you know when you get a rock band, they've got a rider saying what uh, you know, mineral water and what beer they want in the uh, in, in the green room? Does a, a, a legendary brewer have a rider saying what beer he wants served um, to him when he's down here? We cer- we're certainly going to make sure we look after our um, our international headliners. They're they're not quite uh, prince like in their demand, um, <laughs> but so, so far everything's pretty pretty achievable but we're certainly going to make sure they're comfortable and uh, well looked after. I, I remember um, bumping into John Palmer at the last day and he was, he was sitting sitting by himself I think how can this international speaker not have a line of people um, coming up to him but um, I think I think people do get a bit of a um, a bit of rock star nervousness with these guys and um, if, if last year's international speakers are anything to uh, to go by, they're, they're as, they've come up through the ranks. They're as keen to talk to anyone as anyone else. And, yeah, they love spreading their education. So um, come up and talk to them at ANHC4. Oh, it was a thrill for me at the first ANHC uh, when Jamil Janishev and uh, John Palmer were both here. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was that sort of thing. They never ran out of things to say to people. They, you know, there was never any sort of don't talk to me. Um, they were the most approachable guys. And I guess that's the exciting thing when you see guys like that and their eyes just light up any time that they're talking about beer. Um, but then I get one of the things that I felt was that they were, you know, actually found it quite refreshing that they weren't being crowded out. You would often see them just sort of sitting and having a quiet beer by themselves uh, as people gave them space. But uh, it is a real thrill and it's, it's a great opportunity for people to meet their, uh, their brewing heroes. And learn about them. What's um, Vinny presenting on? So um, we've got Vinny on board to talk about barrel aging and about sours. So two of his um, two of his strengths there. And um, he'll he'll obviously be delivering the, the keynote address as well. So um, and also I'm just got the program in front of me here. Dry hopping as well. Dry hopping being a um, a key, a key feature of some of his big IPAs, and I know there's many amateur brewers out there who've tried to emulate beers like Pliny, and it's really hard to get that hopping right. So probably some tidbits there to to make a mind-blowing IPA, I think. Sounds great. I mean, I, I think Vinny uh, alone is a reason to uh, c- 
come along to the uh, to the home brewing conference. But you do also have a couple of other things. One of the bonus events that is an is an add on to the actual uh, formalities you know, of the uh, the lessons is the uh, beer and food matching dinner. Um, this year being held at the Australian National Museum, I think you said. That's correct. Yeah. Um, again, you know, I'm quite conscious of sounding like I'm thoroughly gushing um, here, but. Uh, <laughs> One of the best beer and food matching experiences that I've uh, had was the first ANHC um, where Jeff Wyant um, was the chef and he uh, paired his beers up to four um, gold medal winning beers from the previous year from the National Home Brewing Competition. And the beers were amazing and the food matching was just one of the most sophisticated uh, things I've seen. We've come a long way in the last, what, uh, seven or eight years um, since the first ANH uh, Australian National Home Brewing Conference, and you know we, we've seen a lot more dinners, but it still stands out to me. Uh, have, what have you got lined up for the uh, beer and food matching this year? So it's going to be a pretty delicious sounding four course meal, um, and uh, certainly the main and dessert will um, each be paired with two beers. So it'll be um, do my math, it'll be six beers across the four courses. Um, so particularly with the, with the mains, we'll be looking to have quite contrasting matches and same for the dessert. So um, really going the more deep, deep, rich, sweet and also the, the drier, um, the drier, more sour angle on the dessert. So it'll be really interesting to be able to compare which of these approaches of a match actually work better. Santa, and who are the... Uh Home brewers who are providing the matching beers. Um, there's, they're all sort of um, previous state and national winners. We're still we're still chasing up the last couple um, brewers, but that, that'll be announced in in the next month or so, I suspect. Um, but yeah, they, they've certainly all um, proven their chops at, at competitions previously, and um, there's some pretty tasty sounding beers coming out of it. There's a lot more happening. I guess we'll speak to you in the lead up a couple of times in the lead up to um, the. Homebrew conference running, but uh, just tell us, uh, tell the listeners where they can get more information and where they can buy tickets when they go on sale on the first of July. So our main um, hub of communication is nhc.com.au. Um, the packaging and pricing information is already up there. So you, there's an early bird pricing that will be running through till the end of August. Um, the early bird pricing is pretty decent discount and you also get um, an exclusive entry into the door prize draw. We're giving away a um, stainless steel uh, conical fermenter as part of the door prize for early bird full package ticket purchases. So that's a $500 value. So, you know, the, the lucky door prize winner is going to get more than their ticket price back in, in a pretty shiny, blingy fermenter there. <laughs> um, and, uh, sorry? Oh, and um, of course, we've got our mailing list there, so we'll be keeping the mailing list, the Facebook and Twitter, pretty um, pretty heavy up until the conference. And uh, with a lot of people having to travel to Canberra, you've got uh, um, accommodation packages um, in place as well? Indeed, yeah. They're up, they're up on the site now. There's um, a range of packages to suit most budgets, and um, they're all within stumbling distance of the conference, which is really good. Uh, well, let, let's uh, let, let's keep it uh, classy, uh, home brewers, and uh, hopefully there won't be too much stumbling. Um, but uh, home brewers and all uh, beer people seem to like their merch, and so you've got uh, merch as well. Yeah, we're we're, we're doing pre-sale merch this year to make sure that um, everyone gets their size and that we get a, a good idea for the demand out there. So, of course, anyone who buys a ticket to the conference gets a goodie bag and a tasting glass and a lanyard and so on that all come as part of your ticket. But um, there's a conference T-shirt and a commemorative uh, schooner glass 
uh, or Pilsner glass that um, will also be available to put, to pre-order it you know, when you purchase your ticket. Brilliant. Kev, uh, thanks very much for joining us today. We'll uh, be sure to keep uh, in, in touch with how things are progressing in the lead-up to the Australian National Home Brewers Conference, and we'll be uh, tweeting and retweeting and uh, you know, reminding people as the uh, tickets go on online. But thank you very much for joining us, and uh, all the best for a monumental job pulling all of this together. Cheers, Matt. Thanks for your time. And thanks to Kevin Hingston there for uh, coming in and telling us a little bit about this year's ANHC and the guests that they've got. Um, certainly a great event. It's always well run, but the calibre of the uh, uh, presenters that they get uh, and, and your access to them certainly makes it worthwhile. So if you're a home brewer, head along to that. Um, and that's an unpaid ad, by the way. It's just we really like what they do. Now, before I uh, play my interview with Keith Villa um, from Blue Moon, uh, we... We'll thank another one of our sponsors, and this time it's Brewpack. Um, Brews, Brews News is made possible with the generous support of Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and keg beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate hands-on brewers in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And we thank Brewpack for uh, helping us to brew up our little podcast uh, with their generous support. And now to my interview with Keith Filler and David Coors. For those who don't know, Blue Moon Brewing Company occupies the same space in the US um, beer scene as Malt Shovel uh, or Matilda Bay does here. Um, it's wholly owned by uh, Miller Coors um, and it's a little bit of a, their craft sidearm. Um, Blue Moon Belgian White is um, reputedly the largest selling uh, craft beer in the US and of course, that's craft beer with inverted commas around uh, the word because we can get all sorts of uh, discussions going about what craft beer. But it's certainly one of those beers that takes its uh, cue from craft beer. And however you define it, it's uh, the biggest selling of that style of beer. Um, though, of course, under the US uh, Brewers Association definition of craft beer, uh, it, it doesn't fit within the uh, the, the volume um, calculations for this craft beer in the United States. But anyway, um, I had a chance to catch up with Keith uh, Villa, um, who's the head brewer, um, and David Coors, who's part of the fifth generation uh, scion of the uh, Coors family uh, brewing company, and to find out a little bit more about what their plans are for Australia, and particularly for Blue Moon in Australia. Keith Villa and uh, David Coors, welcome to Radio Brews News, and uh, welcome to Australia. Thank you very much. So we might start with you, Keith. Uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your, your background. You were the founder of the Blue Moon Brewery. Correct. Uh, yes. Which is based in Denver. Denver, Colorado. Yeah, started it in 1995 out of the Coors Field, uh, which is the baseball stadium for the Colorado Rockies, our major league baseball team. We're located in Wright Field of the stadium, and our brewery is very small. It's a 10-barrel brew house, which makes about 310 gallons per batch. Uh, again, very small. It's 20 kegs if you want to uh, take it down to the keg size. Um, we use it for uh, producing Blue Moon beer for the local uh, area as well as developing new recipes down there because it's the perfect place to come up with new recipes and test those recipes with all the thirsty baseball fans. Now, when Blue Moon started, was that owned by Cause at that stage or was it independent and was uh, subsumed eventually? Yes, we got, we got uh, complete funding for from Coors Brewing Company to be a an operating unit, and uh, so we opened up. We and we've got 
independence to develop the beers that we like and the beers that we uh, think our fans would like. So, so we've got pl plenty of independence, uh, and we've got the luxury of using the Coors Network to distribute our beer, to uh, use the laboratories to analyze our ingredients and make sure our ingredients are the best quality we can get. So uh, we're in the best situation ever. Uh, we've got a craft brewery. We've got uh, the luxury of having a large brewery to um, uh, use their laboratories, their distribution network, all of their logistics. So it's really a fantastic situation that we're in. Um, it's, and it's a lot of fun because we can uh, develop a beer that our fans like and get it out to all those thirsty Blue Moon fans on the East Coast, the West Coast, and even um, now here in Australia, exporting from our uh, the, the Coors facilities. And Coors must have been fairly early to the uh, to the craft beer. Um, craft beer, depending on when you trace it, that goes back to the early 1980s. But in terms of the big breweries' involvement, um, Blue Moon seems to have started fairly early on um, in in that process, going back to the 90s. 1995 was when we started. But in fact, at the Coors Brewery, they were making some craft style beers. Uh, well before Blue Moon uh, in 1995, so uh, they made a beer called uh, Killian's Red, which was a forerunner of uh, amber ales, amber lagers, that appeared in about 1981. Uh, an another beer which was very rich and flavorful was called Herman Joseph, uh, Herman Joseph's uh, uh, lager. This one was uh, debuted in about 1980, and um, again, really a nice, nice uh, lager. Uh, richer and not as sweet as Sam Adams Boston Lager. So uh, it was well before its time. Because mm -hmm. uh, as I talked to the brewers who used to be there back in those days, they told me that they would brew this. And it was a rich um, all malt craft style lager. And they had to convince people to buy it because it had so much flavor. Back then people weren't used to having so much flavor in a lager beer. and. Uh, uh, it never really took off to become super popular because it was ahead of its time. Same with uh, Blue Moon Belgian White. I launched that in 1995 when the, the Belgian beers, uh, which today are very popular all around the world, were unheard of. 1995, people didn't know much about Belgian ales and even knew less about where on the map they could find the country of Belgium. Tell us a little, a little bit about yourself. Uh, you started as a molecular biologist and uh, yes. intending to go to uh, medical school. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and you took a, <laughs> a diversion into, uh, into brewing. Tell yes, us a little bit about right. how that happened. Sure, yeah. Uh, I'm a native of Colorado. I was born uh, literally down the street from the Coors Brewery. So there's a uh, hospital called Lutheran Hospital. That's, that's where I was born. Uh, I grew up uh, in Arvada, which is a sub, uh, subdivision, I guess, of Denver, suburb. And um, I, I graduated from the University of Colorado in Boulder. Um, today, it's, it's probably most famous for how liberal it is. They uh, recently legalized marijuana, so <laughs> a lot of tourists <laughs> love to go there because of that. Um, but yeah, I graduated uh, with a degree in molecular biology, and three months before I graduated, I, I literally was planning to go to medical school. I had taken my uh, medical college admission tests. I had done my uh, interviews to get into medical school. And uh, about three months before graduation, Coors wanted to find somebody to do beer research, uh, fermentation research, brewing research. And so they put this advertisement up in the laboratories of the molecular biology building. And I happened to be working in, in there as an undergrad. I had co-authored a couple of articles, and 
I checked that out and I was a home brewer and I thought this really looks fascinating. So I went to the brewery and talked to them along with uh, probably a hundred other students and they called me the next day and said I was the most qualified and they said uh, uh, if I wanted to join them I can start as soon as possible. In fact they asked if I could start the day after I graduated from school. So I had to go back that evening to my uh, dormitory and ask myself if I wanted to work with sick people or beer. <laughs> and I, uh, and I said, well, I will go there, work with beer for one year, and if I don't like it, I'm headed straight to medical school. So I, I was there for a year, I loved it, I stayed another year, and then I said I was going to quit, go to CU and get my PhD in, in that type of research, because it was, it was a lot of fun. So I told them, and they said, well, hold on, what if we send you to Belgium to get your PhD in brewing? And I thought, man, that is awesome, I'm, I'm there. So they sent me to Belgium, I was there for four years, got my doctorate in brewing science, so it's biochemistry with brewing specialization. I graduated uh, magna cum laude and uh, came back to Golden. And at that time, uh, they didn't quite know what to do with me because I, here I was, fresh from Europe. I was uh, intimately familiar with Belgian ales, how they made them, uh, uh, German ales, because I had uh, gone all over Europe studying beers and how they made their beers. So I, I was very familiar with all that. Um, and I, I fell in love with the Belgian ales. I, I just loved recreating them and trying to put little special unique twists on them and make them even better, in my opinion. And so in 1994, that's when uh, Peter Coors uh, got the idea of having an operating unit dedicated to craft beer. So, so we got the funding. Uh, I was paired up with a gentleman from marketing. We put together the business plan and uh, I put together the recipes, uh, the, the specifications, the operations plan, um, and we, we went to work to create this new uh, operating unit for Coors. Um, the one thing we did not have was a name for the brewery, so uh, we racked our brains literally trying to find out a great name for this brewery. And finally, our administrative assistant came up to us and she said, you know, you guys have wonderful beers. The recipes are delicious. You've got uh, the uh, logistics and the support of this big brewery. She said, you, you have the opportunity of a lifetime. She said, something like this uh, doesn't come around except for once in a blue moon. She said, why don't you call it Blue Moon Brewing Company? We thought that's an, a fantastic name. And um, we were on a shoestring budget back then, a very, very tight budget. So to reward her, uh, we gave her a t-shirt. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we used that name. and. We thought it would be hugely successful, but what we found was that uh, it was very difficult in the early years because people didn't know what Belgian beer was, and when they saw Blue Moon Belgian White, they saw this cloudy liquid, and they immediately thought that there was a problem. They thought it was contaminated or infected, and I had to convince them that no, this is an unfiltered wheat ale, and what they were seeing was protein from the wheat, they were seeing the fiber from the oats that we brew with, and they were seeing brewer's yeast, which is rich in vitamin B. And, uh, and I went around the U.S. convincing people that, you know, this is a great liquid. I educated people. I did uh, brewmaster beer dinners before they were in vogue. I mean, today you can go to any restaurant and have a brewmaster beer dinner. Back in 1995, that was unheard of. People thought that was strange and, and very, very bizarre. Um, but I kept at it. Uh, and traveled the country from 95 to 97 and during that time I found that people were serving our beer in the few bars that did serve us they would serve it without an orange they would serve it really with a lemon and I thought you know that's not appropriate because our beer is brewed with three grains 
barley malt, wheat malt, and oats. And it's spiced in the brew kettle with hops, just a little bit of hops, but more importantly, spiced with coriander and orange peel. I did that to make the beer as fruity as possible. Uh, it's dry, it's not sweet, but mm. the fruitiness makes you per perceive that it's sweet. Uh, it's very, very thirst-quenching, very, very flavorful, and, and certainly a craft beer. So, as I saw people garnishing our beer with a lemon, I put out a, a, a note to our salespeople to say, please have our retailers start serving it with a slice of orange, a wheel, if you will. And um, I heard back right away, loud and clear, that nobody had oranges. This was 1997. I believe you delivered bags of oranges and cutting boards we and knives to, to venues. We, we had to. We, we had to. We didn't have the resources to just uh, you know get out there and, and give everybody oranges and, and uh, tell everybody what to do. We, I mean, we were uh, a teeny tiny brewery. We, we really had nothing, no clout, no uh, power to do anything. So we had to always do things creatively and um, as low budget as possible. So. For the orange garnish, in order to get people to have that, uh, I would travel from bar to bar that served Blue Moon, and I would take a bag of oranges, a cutting board, and a knife, and literally meet with the, the bartender and the staff on a Monday morning, since that was their typical time of the day and day of the week, for downtime to plan for the week and get everything ready for uh, promotions and everything. So I would meet with them and say, you know, with Blue Moon, can you please help us out? Can you garnish it with an orange like this? And I would show them how to slice the orange into a wheel and how to garnish the glass. And they said, sure, we could do that. And so they would do it for a week, and I would come back the next week and say, how's it going? And they would say, it's going great. You know, people love this little gimmick. And I said, okay, here's another bag of oranges, free bag, you know, just use them. And they would do that, and I would do that for about four or five weeks. And uh, at the end of that time, I would just stop. With cold turkey, just stop. And they would... Um, not have oranges. Their customers then, who had grown used to having an orange on their blue moon, you know, like this, they would then have a glass without the orange. And they would tell the retailer, they would say, hey, where's my orange garnish? And of course the retailer would then call us on the phone and say, where's my free bag of oranges? I need it. And we would say, that was an introductory thing. Now you have to go buy your own oranges. And they were forced to because of their customers. The customers demanded it. We had really gone out with that guerrilla marketing campaign and convinced customers that Blue Moon is an awesome drink by itself, but it's spectacular when you put that orange slice garnish on it because it brings out the orange uh, aroma that it's brewed with. It's brewed with orange peel and coriander. I might come back to orange. I might uh, throw to, to David for a second. Yeah. Keith just uh, told us a little bit about how uh, consumers have become used to beers being very clear and you know, pale and not particularly strongly flavoured. And I guess uh, Coors is famous for the, the, the light flavoured lager um, that uh, I think is sometimes unfair. There's a, a joke that is often unfairly attributed to, uh, to Coors uh, and, and Canoes um, <laughs> over, over here. But, uh, <laughs> thing how, how much is uh, the, the craft brewing movement uh, almost a reaction against those mainstream lagers that uh, breweries like Coors uh, made famous? Well, so I think the the lighter lagers were, were really a consumer trend. So before Coors Light was there, we had Coors Banquet, our original uh, Coors recipe that's a full-flavored 5% ABV lager, and that was our main flagship brand. Coors Light came around on the heels of Miller Light launching in the States, and it was a consumer trend. The consumers were asking for it, and so it was... It was one of those deals where you, if, if you want to stay in business, you got to uh, appeal to the consumers. And so 
Coors has been on this wonderful tra trajectory for 40 some years of uh, continued growth and still doing not very well in the States and is number two in the States. Um, craft movement is great in my opinion because it's getting people re-engaged into beer and excited about beer and talking about it. So it's become occasion based. People want a Coors on a hot summer day. You guys have wonderful beaches and wonderful sports fans and so fits perfectly for that. If you're having dinner or just want to have a couple of pints with a maid after, after work, you know, a full flavored craft beer may be better for that occasion. So I still think there's a good need base for both, but it's I, the swell of craft beer is great. It's exciting. And tell us a little bit about the Coors Brewery. You're, you're the yeah. fifth generation uh, of the Coors family uh, to, to be working the brewery. Yep. Um, our own Cooper's uh, Brewery, which is a famous 150-year-old uh, uh, brewery uh, up to their fifth generation. So tell us yeah. a little bit about the history of the, of the brewery. Yeah, it uh, started in 1873 by my great-great-grandfather. And uh, he stowed away from, from Germany. He was a brewing apprentice at the age of 16 and uh, had heard great things about America and so left his family and stowed away and, and ended up in New York um, and worked his way across America. He was, uh, worked at a brewery in um, Illinois for a while, and I uh, heard a story where the owner of the brewery was trying to get him to marry his daughter, <laughs> and, and so my, uh, my great-great-grandfather Adolf said, okay, I'm out of here, and he kept moving west, <laughs> and he knew that water was uh, key to making good beer, because back then they didn't have filtration techniques and modification techniques of water additives, and so he found Golden Colorado in this amazing natural spring water, and started brewing beer there. So. Back then, when it was such a necessity of good quality water, uh, he started a brewery with a partner, and soon thereafter bought his partner out, and, and I guess the rest is somewhat history. Uh, started out as a small regional craft brewery, um, expanded to 13 states, wouldn't move east of the Mississippi because uh, we were un always have been unpasteurized, um, and would have to ship cold by cold rail and trucks. And uh, as soon as technology expanded to better filtration and cold trucks and rail, we expanded across the nation. So it's it's got kind of that cold craft story, but you know, 50 years ago. It's a uh, the core story really mirrors a, a lot about the uh, U.S. brewing um, tradition, where the very German um, influence, the, the German migrations really influence the, the brewing style and uh, Anheuser-Busch is a very similar um, yep. story and uh, how how has that influence, how has the German tradition influenced modern brewing um, you know, 150 years after or 130 years after you uh, first started brewing? Yeah, um, well, I mean Europe is kind of the, the mecca or origin of, of beer whether it's the Czech Republic or, or Germany known for beer. Uh, I think these days you see pop people following different origins, so the German purity laws, a lot of craft breweries and small breweries focus on that. Keith focused on Belgian breweries. Um, I think there's there's uh, a lot of movement in America around very hoppy beers and, and West Coast, um, uh, I guess, pale ales or IPAs. And, I mean, you've got all these wonderful styles that are, are inspired from origins, um, uh, but Germans, for some reason, really seem to have a stronghold in, in the U.S. In, in early on years. Uh, Keith, go back to you. Uh, we, we're talking. We, we're drinking the uh, Blue Moon uh, Belgian Wit beer. Mm -hmm. um, you've talked about the orange. Uh, how much of the slice of orange on the glass is theatre um, and presentation and marketing, and how much of it is actually enhancing the flavour uh, of what we're tasting? 
my original reason for coming up with that orange slice garnish was purely functional. It allows the orange and fruity aromas of the beer to be magnified, so it, it's a functional garnish, uh, really to, to bring out and amplify those, those nice notes that are in the beer. Uh, secondarily, it, it is, and I didn't plan on it, but it, it is a, a visual um, indicator of Blue Moon. So when you put it on there in the bar, it really, a bar situation like here, it, it becomes, you know, bars are crowded with lots of competitors, and when you see a glass with that orange garnish, it really makes our beer stick out. So, so uh, because of that, it gives that visual appeal. You see this uh, beautiful golden, cloudy beer with an orange garnish on the side, and, and, uh, and immediately a lot of people uh, they have their interest peaked and say, "What is that? Can I try that?" And um, so, yeah, that's the secondary aspect of that. Uh, uh, orange garnish first again is, is functional to bring out the aromas second is the visual appeal and third what we found out um, quite unexpectedly is that consumers really form a bond with Blue Moon uh, because they have a, their own ritual with that garnish uh, if we talk to our fans it turns out that they do the same thing with that garnish time and time again. Some people will take the garnish off and put it in the beer and drink the beer. Others will just take it off and set it aside time and time again. Others still will take the garnish off and squeeze the juice into the beer. And it doesn't matter um, how many times they've consumed our beers, but their little ritual is the same time and time again. And so what it, it does is it really creates a bond with our with our brand of Blue Moon. So it's something that's that's really, really fun to see. So. So the, something that I developed in 1997 is just a, a functional garnish turned into such a magnet for our, our brand. And I believe that uh, whereas Curacao orange peel is a traditional Belgian variety, uh, you opted for Valencia um, orange peel? Correct. Uh, our beer is, is much different. It was inspired by the Belgian beers. Uh, as I lived over there and had the beers, I thought they were fantastic, but I thought, you know, I'd like to brew a Belgian white that my friends in the United States would really like, something that uh, that they wouldn't have to get used to, something they would like right away, uh, something that was really great for pairing with food, and something that could be drunk on its own. So I looked at the recipes for Belgian wit beers that had been brewed for hundreds of years and found that, yes, they use Curacao orange peel. Uh, in the States we say Curacao orange peel. <laughs> and uh, uh, Curacao is, is uh, if you see it and smell it, it doesn't smell orangey. Uh, but in taste, it's kind of citrus and bitter, and uh, the Belgians have used it for hundreds of years in their wit beers, uh, mainly for that taste aspect. And, um, and I thought, you know, I want a beer with some fruitiness to it, some nice, refreshing orange character, so I'm going to use Valencia orange peel. Uh, that's the first and major distinction between our beer and Belgian wit beers. The second is that I wanted our beer to have a nice, creamy mouthfeel to it, something with some, some body, not too much just a little bit of a creamy mouthfeel, so I put oats in our beer. Uh, Belgian brewers used oats in their wit beers hundreds of years ago, but stopped brewing them uh, with oats about, oh, about 50 to 100 years ago, because oats are very difficult to brew with. Oats have uh, fiber in them, and it's good for us to eat oats because of that fiber, but when you brew with oats, that fiber can gum up the, uh, the valves and the, the filtration of the brew house, and so uh, brewers in Belgium stopped using oats in their uh, their wit beers. I definitely said, 
we're going to use oats. And we did, uh, and it results in a nice creamy mouthfeel. So that's the second uh, major difference between Blue Moon and the Whitbeers of Belgium. I believe Pierre Sellis, when he um, started, he, he used oats, but once it was taken over uh, by S.A.B. Miller, I think they might have dropped out the oats, uh, yeah. which changed the, the, the body of the beer a little. little yes, yeah, so it made it lighter. Uh, again, the, uh, that is lighter in, in, in uh, almost to an extent kind of watery. Uh, and the brewers uh, over there did that because really it's it makes it easier to brew the beer. It's difficult to brew with oats, but uh, we're very proud of using the oats and uh, it gives that nice creamy signature mouthfeel to Blue Moon. So that's the second uh, big distinction. The third and final big distinction is that the typical Belgian whip beers are around 4 to 4.2 percent ABV. I wanted a little bit more to make our beers more food friendly and more flavorful, so I dialed it up to 5.4, so we're more than a degree higher in alcohol. Um, and that what it does is it does make our beers more food friendly, uh, a little more flavorful, but we're right on the edge where we still have that sessionability for, uh, for a craft beer. So we've got the flavor, the body, but still you can drink uh, two or three, maybe even four or five of our beers. Um, but they're not to designed to be thirst quenching like, like a Coors beer. These are designed to be craft beers. They, they are craft beers, uh, flavorful. I guess this is a question that uh, I, I can flick to both of you, uh, both from a, a management and from a brewing perspective. Um, you, you mentioned that you wanted beers that uh, people didn't have to grow to like, they, they didn't have to acquire mm. the taste of, um, which is why you use the uh, uh, Valencia orange. At what there, there must be a, a fine balance between um, making beers, you know, popularising beer styles and dumbing them down. And I, I guess that's something that big breweries are often um, accused of um, in uh, the, the, the beer geek world of uh, dumbing beers down. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, brewing is a business and you know, a, a big brewery needs to stay in business and needs to grow. And uh, Is Coors a public company or is it a family-owned company? It's a public company public on company, the New York Stock so Exchange, but still family-owned uh, and a lot of family involvement. So, so uh, I guess from a brewer's point of view, how do you walk that tightrope between popularising beer styles or making them approachable and not too challenging, but at the same time... Uh, you know, maintaining the brewer's art. Um. Yeah, sometimes we have been accused of dumbing down beers, and my response to that is quite simple. I, I never dumb down a beer. What I do is I take a style, I get inspired by it, and I put my own inviting twist on it. So, again, if you take Blue Moon Belgian White and compare it to a Belgian Wit, uh, again, you go through those three differences, and I, I would argue that that's not dumbing it down. Ours is beefed up in alcohol. We're 5.4 versus 4.2 for mm -hmm. typical wits. We use Valencia orange peel, which I personally love, versus Curacao, which has no orange taste. Uh, we've got our orange garnish. We've got oats, which are very difficult to brew with. Uh, craft brewers usually avoid uh, using oats because they're difficult. Uh, so if that's dumbing something down, I, I, <laughs> I would say it's quite the opposite. And then I point to the fact that we've won numerous medals at the Great American Beer Festival, World Beer Cup, uh, local beer competitions. And um, so I think not just uh, I think our, our beers are great, but judges, independent beer judges, uh, agree that our beers really are uh, uh, worthy of medals. And so th of that, I'm, I'm very proud. And um, again, if uh, making a great beer that sells well, that wins medals, that people love, uh, if that's dumbing down a beer, then I'm all for it. Um, and, and I guess following on from that, uh, we've seen a whole range of um, 
trends uh, coming uh, with uh, beer and wine hybrids and uh, barrel aging and things. These are things that uh, you've been doing at Sandlot uh, Brewery since the uh, late 90s. Uh, you, you made a Chardonnay beer uh, before it was even a, a, a trend, I understand. Yes, we've been brewing beers that are now called extreme beers, uh, exemplified by, by craft brewers all across the U.S. and, and around the world, beer, uh, beers coming out uh, that are being called extreme. We were doing this in the 90s before there was a term for these beers, but uh, uh, yeah, we were brewing with everything from, from grapes, that is uh, not just table grapes, but true uh, wine grapes, and uh, we started that in the 1990s well before anybody uh, else was doing that, uh, mainly because I, I've been making wine at home for years. I'm a home winemaker. Uh, my wife and I have these little kitty swimming pools that our kids used, you know, to, to bathe in and everything in the summertime. And, um, but at the end of the summer, I would uh, confiscate their pools and <laughs> turn them into uh, primary uh, fermentation <laughs> tanks. So what I would do is fill them up with 500 pounds of wine grapes, We'd have three little pools. We'd invite the friends over, and uh, uh, we would drink wine, have cheese and bread. And then um, uh, towards the end of the evening, uh, I would invite everybody down into our walkout basement, and uh, we would uh, ba uh, wash our feet with a nice solution of, of uh, sanitizer, then step into the grapes and start stomping. <laughs> and it would take about 45 minutes to an hour to stomp all these grapes, and, uh, and we had a lot of fun. We've been doing that for about 26, 27 years. And, um, and it's really a lot of fun. But back in the early days, I wanted to create a hybrid of wine and beer because I thought, you know, I love wine, uh, I love beer, I even love spirits, but wine and beer I thought were really great and I always wanted uh, to make a hybrid of the two, something that was like wine but with hints of beer. And I did that in the 90s and what I found is that people did not like it. They were not ready for it, just like they weren't ready for Belgian white back then. It took a lot of hard work to educate people and say, this is what we're, we're all about. Uh, but unfortunately, they didn't like the wine beers to a huge extent, so I put the recipe in my archives. And then 10 years later, in 2006, I rolled out the recipe again for the Great American Beer Festival and found that, that we won a medal. We won a, a silver medal that year uh, just on brewing that beer, entering it, and um, judges loved it. And we served it that year at the GABF in, in the States and found that all these thirsty uh, craft beer fans fell in love with that beer. So. We, we started producing it every year in the summertime and then finally officially named it uh, Vintage Blonde Ale about two years ago and uh, found that people really liked that. They, they had changed their perceptions of what, uh, what a beer could be, an extreme beer. Uh, they were open to, to any kind of beer brewed with any ingredient. So uh, we then uh, evolved that Vintage Blonde Ale into what we call our vintage collection. So the vintage collection consists of these beers um, made with uh, wine grapes from the central coast of California. We have so far two reds. We have a Cabernet Sauvignon and a Merlot beer. Then we have um, two whites. We have a Chardonnay and we have a Sauvignon Blanc. But the very unique thing about these beers is that they're brewed with 100% wheat. And that is a very difficult thing to do. If you ask craft brewers around the world, uh, to make a wheat beer and you ask specifically what's the most wheat you could put in a beer many of them will tell you about 60% or 65 and a few will say well 70% is the max and, and you can't go any higher because you'll have problems in your brew house mm -hmm. but what I figured out is a way to brew our beers with 100% wheat 
And how, how do you do that? Do you use rice husks or something to allow for the filtering? That's part it of it, but if I told you our secret, I'd, I'd have, <laughs> to, have kill to kill you. Kill me. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, yeah, we figured out a way to brew with 100% wheat. And the reason for that is because wheat is a clean tasting grain. Uh, it, it tastes very slightly like beer. Barley malt really tastes like beer. You make a beer out of barley malt because it tastes like beer. It makes beer taste like beer. Um, I wanted a clean grain so that when I put the grapes in, the flavor of the grapes would shine through. And, uh, and, and it did exactly that. So our vintage collection ales are brewed with wine grapes and that benefit of using 100% wheat allows the grape character to shine through. Our Chardonnay beer has won numerous medals uh, because it really smells and tastes like Chardonnay wine with just a hint of beer. Uh, it's got that ripe red apple character. Our Sauvignon Blanc beer has that uh, uh, traditional, what, what uh, wine experts call cat pee. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a strange descriptor, but... Um, even here, uh, your wines here, uh, your Sauvignon Blancs that you're so famous for, have that that note in them, which is expected in a Sauvignon Blanc. And our beer, our Sauvignon Blanc beer, has it. And uh, so I'm very proud of those because they've won numerous medals, and um, and they're just really good beers to have with food. I love uh, Charlie Bamforth's line about uh, you go out into a field of grapes or a vineyard and get a bucket of grapes and stand on them and you get wine, go out into a barley field and stand on it and you just get sore feet. Um, <laughs> what's easier, uh, what's harder to make, uh, wine or beer? I think uh, the tougher one, for me, I have a PhD in brewing, so for me it's quite easy to make beer. <laughs> it's tough for me to make wine, uh, mainly because you're at the, the uh, mercy of nature. If, if there's a, uh, a wet season and the grapes uh, are poor quality, uh, you will not make very good wine. There's not a lot you could do to, to remedy that. But if you have a hot, dry summer, it really concentrates the sugars and you end up with a, a fantastic wine. So you, you literally are at the mercy of, uh, of nature, mother nature. Uh, with beer, you can end up with barley malt and hops that are okay. I mean, obviously, you, it's tough to make a good beer out of inferior malt, mm -hmm. but you can use a, a, a good malt and make a really good beer through science. Uh, and that's where really, uh, to your question earlier to David about the Germans, the Germans did so much research in the early days with beer and figured out a lot of scientific methods to improve beer and make it better and better. And, um, and that's why you go back to what they did, you read what they did, and you can make a fantastic beer using reasonably good malt and good hops. Um, it's, it's just uh, the nature of the beast. You can uh, treat the water to make any style of beer, make a, a great IPA, India Pale Ale, or an Imperial Stout, or you can make a, a light lager American style, which, by the way, is the hardest style in the world to make, because if you make one little mistake, in a light lager, it shines through like like uh, a flare going off in the night sky. Um, it's like the emperor's clothes. You know, if you're naked, you better have a great body because everybody's <laughs> going to see every imperfection on you. So, so light beer is the most difficult style to make in the world. I think brewers around the world agree, although some craft brewers may may uh, may not at first. But when they learn how difficult brewing is because many craft brewers last year might have been a banker or a real estate agent, this year they're a brewer. Uh, and when they learn all the intricacies of brewing, they finally learn that light lager is the most difficult style in the world to brew. 
the easiest is the hoppiest beer, IPA. You keep putting in hops after hops after hops, and hops will cover the sins of the brewer. That's uh, one of the sayings we have. Hops will cover the sins of the brewer. You can uh, infect the beer, you can do whatever you want, and all those hops and all that bitterness will cover up a lot of the defects. One of my uh, great uncles, Uncle Bill's favorite saying, or my favorite saying of his is that uh, barley is to beer as grapes are to wine. Um, and I think it's a pretty profound statement. And of course, over the years, has had a very intimate relationship with his barley growers in, in the Rocky Mountain region. And, and has a, I mean, Keith probably knows more than me or does know more than me, but uh, that's that program that they have of optimizing uh, the malt of barley as much as possible is pretty, pretty interesting. David, tell us a little bit about it. The brewing world is very complicated. Uh, you've got Coors Brewery, which is Molson Coors in Canada, um, uh, Miller Coors in the United States, and it's SAB Miller over here. So technically with your beers arriving in Australia, you're almost competing with yourself uh, in, in the States. How does that work? Yeah, um, SAB Miller is a, a great partner for us in the US. It was, it was a wonderful joint venture for both of us because Anheuser-Busch was, was so much bigger than us that we needed to compete effectively or else they would have put us out of business. And, and we also, as a family, one of our other families, goals has been to, um, to be sure that we weren't bought out. So whether it was the merger with Molson or the joint venture with uh, SAB Miller in the U.S., it was, um, it was a way for us to stay involved as, as a family. Um, so they are a great partner of ours in the U.S. And then it is, it is a bit interesting coming over here and, and saying they're quote-unquote competitors um, but it is it's uh, the the global beer industry is somewhat incestual uh, that you'll see uh, it's probably not the most PC term but <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, you know, I know what you, you know what I mean um, and so uh, I think it's it's all fair and love and war right <laughs> and, exactly yeah and something that I was intrigued about when I was I was in Denver a couple of years ago and uh, I was at Coors Stadium uh, Sandlot Brewery uh, in, in the basement and yet you could still buy um, New Belgium's uh, Fat Tire Amber Ale um, at, at the stadium. How does that work? Because over here, the uh, we, we, we don't have the, the um, separation, the, the three-layer, um, the three-tier system. Um, and if you go to the Gabba, where the cricket's being played today, uh, you'll only get Foster's beers. So, uh, or CUB can buy the complete rights. Yeah. Is that something that you've allowed um, at Coors Stadium, or is it something that is just uh, under, under the laws... Uh, yeah, uh, no, it's a, it's a good question, and and my experience of it is is I remember being younger and, and asking my dad why is there a Budweiser sign and why are they selling Budweiser in, in Coors Field, um, and his point was was pretty interesting to me, and he said, oh, if we're gonna beat them, let's beat them toe to toe, kind of a deal is is I'm not gonna lock them out, let's let's play a fair game and let the the consumers decide what they want to drink, and and uh, I think that to me has been a lesson over the years of. Is, is is our approach? Um, I think the Coors kind of approach is is a bit more of a friendly, fair, honest uh, approach, which which I've taken to. It, it was a fantastic experience, uh, and I, I think I was saying to you before that I'd, I'd spent three days in Denver um, at the Great American Beer Festival, and I, I described it. Um, I wrote an article for the All About Beer magazine. I described it as like trying to take a uh, sip from a fire hose. Um, you just couldn't do it, and having three or four hours at uh, Coors Field was literally, um, considering I travelled for the American Beer Festival, um, three hours at Coors Field was fantastic and be able to try your own beers and then uh, yeah. 
other beers and watch baseball uh, was an amazing experience. So it's really interesting to hear that that's a perspective that it's not mandated that you have to allow others in that you just do because I guess uh, Keith, that must be very uh, gratifying for you that uh, the confidence in your beers is that. Uh, that the company is willing to back them against uh, competitors' products in, in the stadium. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, it really is. Uh, it comes down to the fact that you know we let our beers speak for themselves. Uh, if people, you know, if they if they don't uh, if they've heard something about our beers that may be troubling to them, I say please come over to our brewery, try our beers. Uh, I'll let them speak for themselves. Our beers have won numerous medals. Our beers are also kosher. If you look at Blue Moon uh, in the States, uh, you'll see the kosher symbol, which uh, is another sign of quality. We use only the best quality materials and ingredients to make our beers. Um, our beers are, are very uh, well thought out. Uh, again, I'm, I'm a beer doctor. <laughs> I can, uh, I can uh, do these things. And uh, uh, One other thing, Keith, though, is, is Keith's been very helpful to the craft community over the years and, and has helped a lot of them um, kind of with their growing pains. And, and I think that, again, is a testament to, to the company that, that was Coors Brewing Company. It's another Coors. It's, it's friendly inviting the brewing industry is, is uh, an industry as a whole, not competition all the time. Yeah, and it really harkens back to the, the West. Coors Brewing Company is in the West. Uh, uh, when Adolf started that brewery, it was, it was the Wild West. And, and there was kind of the law of the West, which was, you know, you help your neighbor, you, um, you, you, you don't take what's not yours. I mean, there's, there's these unwritten rules that uh, people abided by in the Old West to, to allow uh, what little civilization was there to function. Because uh, you know you had a sheriff and everything, but still, out out in the wilderness where there wasn't a sheriff, you had the unwritten rules of the West. And I think, um, really, we still think that way out there. Our culture is that you know you help your neighbors if they're in trouble, uh, you don't take what's yours. You, it's just these basic rules of civilization and, and helping your neighbor when they're in trouble. Yeah, I've, I've helped uh, numerous craft brewers if they've had problems. Um, of course, once they become large and successful, I back off. <laughs> <laughs> David, uh, and I'm conscious of how much time I've taken, but just uh, very quickly, a couple of uh, last questions. The craft beer market in the States has exploded. I, I think uh, there are now over 2,500 craft breweries in production yeah. um, of all sizes, and I read a statistic recently that there's almost 1,000 in planning. Um, there's been talk about a craft beer bubble. Um, where do you see the uh, craft beer market, or where do you see the beer market going over the next uh, uh, two to three years? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and trying to figure out which angle to answer it from. Um, I think you have uh, concerns of, of shelf space, limited shelf space at retail, and how much new SKUs can you handle. The, the law of physics, we <laughs> yes. can't get around that. Tab handles. Um, distributors and, and what they are able to manage, and even working capital if you have Instead of a thousand SKUs, you have three thousand SKUs. Uh, you have a lot more increased working capital, um, so economics come into play, uh, and, and consumers' palates shift. You know, we're seeing them shift more quickly now than ever. Um, yeah, will will uh, American premium light beers continue to be the leaders of the industry? I think they'll retract a little bit, but consumers are this. No matter what, you've had a few IPAs. At some point, you want a light, refreshing lager um, to kind of cleanse your palate a little bit. So 
So it's, I don't know when that bubble is going to be, if there is going to be one. Um, I, I don't want people to go out of business. It's We're creating new, more jobs with the bunch of craft breweries opening up and, and Americans and, and the global craft industry is getting excited about beer again, which is great. So it's it's a tricky question. Um, Chuck Hahn, who uh, yeah. got his start uh, at the Coors Brewery um, back in the 80s, I, I believe, before he emigrated to Australia. Um, has a saying where he says that the thing about craft breweries is that they make fantastic beer and they go out of business and I guess that's uh, something that he found when he uh, started the Han Brewery back in the, uh, the, the, the late 80s and he's uh, brewing now. Do you, do you see that uh, craft beer is on a cycle or do you think that it's here to stay? No, I think it's here to stay. I think the question is market share. How, how big can it get? And once it stops growing and, and has groin pains like premium lights have had recently, you get to a certain scale and mass and the consumer's stomach is only so big. Um, Kraft's consumer's palates are only so so big. So it'll it'll reach that point. And then I think you'll have this a bit of more of a battle. Um, I think you'll have a lot of successful big regional breweries. And then you'll have a lot of the smaller breweries, but the ones stuck in the middle may struggle quite a bit. What do you see as beers competition? Uh, Australian brewers talk about share of throat um, Mm -hmm. and the competing against uh, ciders, for example, hard ciders, as you call it, uh, pre-mixed spirits, um, uh, wine. um, Do you have the same battle in the the States for uh, competing products, not just competing breweries? Yeah, our focus right now in the States, one is we have some cider in our portfolio in the States with Miller Coors, with S.A.B. Miller um, at at Miller Coors and and growing exponentially. And Crispin Cider is a great cider. Uh, They got a lot of great portfolio. Cider is going to continue to grow. I think it's a great refreshing beer that used to be the industry's leader back in what the 1800s it was it was leading the industry as far as the beverage alcohol beverage of choice we're focused on spirits right now um, spirits are, are advertising their advertising dollars have skyrocketed over the past 10 years um, and made it a bit more challenging because the young millennials are seeing these really cool hip ads and and that's that's been our biggest competitor and the industry has to come together rather than infighting between ourselves Keith, um, a couple of last questions uh, to you. Uh, Blue Moon is about to launch in Australia, um, which is why you're here. Um, it, it's going to be brewed in the, in the States. Um, is it going to be coming out of Golden? Or you, you brewed a couple of facilities, not just the Sandlot. You've got the Golden Brewery. Again, we use the, the uh, Molson Coors and Miller Coors uh, network to produce our beers. We choose the best brewery uh, to scale up our beers. All the beers are produced initially at our little brewery uh, in Denver, Colorado. And then when we find a recipe that really works, like, like Blue Moon Belgian White, then we choose the breweries in the network that are the best at making this the way that we designed it. Um, and then they come from North America all the way here. Um, are you going to cold ship it? Because uh, travel is obviously the, uh, the enemy of, uh, of good beer. Our beers, yeah, they are delicate. The spices are delicate. And uh, we want to make sure that the beer is, is the best quality beer so that the Australian drinker has the best experience with our beers. Uh, yeah, it's really about quality. Uh, that's the thing that separates our beers from the competition is uh, we, we have really high quality standards. You talked about doing uh, brewmaster dinners. Um, what what is your uh, perfect pairings for the Blue Moon uh, with beer? A white Blue Moon white. Blue Moon Belgian white. Yeah, yeah. Back Belgium back in the states, we do have a lot of different beers that we've created. Families of beers under the Blue Moon Brewing Company label. But here here in Australia, we're going to start with Blue Moon Belgian white, which is it's really our franchise beer. It's the one that put us on the map and made us famous. Um, this beer is really versatile. It's a beer 
that we treat like wine, uh, almost like a Chardonnay. It's very, very versatile. You can pair our beer up with uh, pork, chicken, fish, uh, virtually any white meat. And you can also pair it up with ethnic cuisine like Thai food, spicy Mexican food. It goes really well with those. Um, the nice part about our beers is also, I was influenced in Belgium to always make beers that are food friendly. So all the beers that Blue Moon Brewing Company comes up with are food friendly. You can pair our beers with food. You can actually cook with our, our beers. You can reduce them uh, to make sauces and drizzle it over things. So, so Blue Moon Belgian White is really food friendly. Uh, you can reduce it and add uh, uh, oil and vinegar and uh, herbs and make it a, a fantastic salad dressing. You can uh, pair it up with a main course of uh, fish, seafood, pork, chicken, Mexican, Thai. Uh, and then you can also use it in dessert. You can pair it up with fruit desserts, uh, specifically anything with orange, uh, anything with vanilla. It goes very well. You can reduce the beer, add sugar and uh, a couple spices like cinnamon, uh, maybe nutmeg, then drizzle it over French vanilla ice cream. So, I mean, you could literally eat, create a five-course dinner with one beer. You're describing the Swiss Army knife, knife of uh, beers, Does I think. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to narrow it down to one perfect pairing, what would it be? With Blue Moon Belgian White? Um, well, in the States, uh, in the States, you know, I, I'm just a, an American guy that likes you know, just a, a nice, delicious hamburger. And, and this, this goes well with, uh, in the summertime, I like to grill a, a good burger and, and have a, a Belgian white. It's a, It just goes well with that, and uh, I put a nice cheese on it. And, and Do you put a slice of pineapple on your burgers in the States? Not me. That's, yeah. that's an abomination to a burger. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's called a Hawaiian burger over here, um, so I'm not sure whether it's one of those things that just happened, but uh, I, I thought you were about to say it was something with a bit of pineapple on it, but um, obviously not. At the, at the beer dinner in uh, Sydney, we had dessert. It was a creme brulee that was made with, it was the best Blue Moon pairing I've had, and they, they even took coriander seeds and caramelized them and sprinkled them on top, and it was unbelievable. Well, I'd suggest uh, giving it a try. There's a spice in Australia called lemon myrtle, um, and it's a little bit like coriander. It's got a little uh, lemony uh, coriander flavour to it, and a white chocolate with lemon, a lemon myrtle white chocolate um, mm -hmm. served with uh, this style of beer is superb. So if you get the chance to try it, uh, that's my recommendation. That's, that's a good tip. See, yeah, that's, well, I, that's a great thing about travel and expanding our brand out here to Australia is talking to people like you and learning these little tidbits, <laughs> yeah. taking them back home, and uh, making Blue Moon even better. We'll see if we can get some uh, lemon myrtle for you to uh, experiment. <laughs> yeah. um, I've taken up plenty of your time. Uh, Keith and David, thank you very much. Welcome to uh, Australia and enjoy the rest of your trip. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Good. Good. Cheers. Appreciate it. And that was Keith Filler and David Coors, both very, very approachable people and very generous with their time. So what do you think, listeners? It's always interesting. You know, any business plays to its strength. And when you speak to small uh independent brewers, they talk about their, their, their smallness and their independence. When you talk about uh, big brewers, they tend to have a slightly different dialogue. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it just depends on where the balance is and it depends on what matters to you. But anyway, you've got to hear them in their own words. Before I sign off on this episode of Radio Brews News, I'd like to thank one more sponsor and that's Core Brewing Concepts who have just come on. They like what we do and they have come on to help us to keep doing it. In return, we actually like what they do. Core Brewing, uh, I've had a bit to do with uh, Core Brewing for a little while, 
And if you're a home brewer or a home brewer looking to expand and even go pro, Core Brewing Concepts are great people to talk to. Head on over to corebrewingconcepts.com.au. They supply just about everything the home brewer needs from ingredients and equipment right through to complete nano breweries. And I understand that they are even at the moment uh, installing a few larger breweries around the place. So if you're passionate uh, about home brewing or looking into expanding and maybe even uh, creating your own little brewery, um, go and check them out. They are as passionate about beer and brewing as you are. Um, go check them out at corebrewingconcepts.com.au. Core Brewing Concepts, Rebel Brewers since 2003. Now, thanks again for joining me in the absence of Prof. Uh, needless to say, the general beer chat, uh, I'm not going to sit around and talk too much about myself, just interview uh, and queue up the interviews that we're doing. Um, this week, I will be speaking to uh, Mr. Crafty Pint himself, James Smith, who has a new book coming out, and I want to find out all about that, and also maybe just get a little bit of a in hindsight wrap about Good Beer Week and where the plans are headed for next year. I also uh, hope to be speaking to Richard Adamson from Young Henry's about their expanding uh, brewery and their plans for a distillery. Um, they're looking at putting, creating a hop-infused gin, which is very interesting. Gin is uh, the, the next big thing in drinks, and it'll be interesting to see what the beer spin on gin is. Uh, it will be a couple of great interviews, um, and, well, at least I hope the guests will be, and hopefully I can uh, keep up with them. Um, I also will try and uh, grab... Prof by Skype and see if we can check in on his European vacation. Now remember, if you like the podcast, you can go visit us at brewsnews.com.au to find out more about the Brews News story. Um, you can like us on Twitter, follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook, uh, which will keep you posted with things that we're about. And also, if you do like the podcast, head on over to iTunes to uh, give us a bit of a wrap, give us a review, or um, conversely, uh, you know, tell us where we can improve. Um, you can always get in touch with us via editor at brewsnews.com.au as well. Thanks for listening. Until next time, remember, drink for flavour and not effect. And as Prof would say, let's strike up the band. There's a garden. What a garden.